and uh, just in fresh ways to remind us of what you've called us to be and and uh, and what we're to be in uh, no matter what the world is around us. And uh, I pray that you would just give us sort of just eyes to see what's in your scripture and, and hearts to hear it and that you'd give me wisdom to actually uh, explain it and talk about it and just that you'd be here uh, present uh, because as we all know otherwise there's, there's really no point. So we just ask for your presence here and you to be building and working in it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been going through the uh, letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And this is the third letter we're going to study today. It's in Revelation chapter 2. It starts in verse 12, if you're turning there in your Bible. And uh, these letters are, are well, they're, they're neat. They're Jesus' letters to churches. And uh, as such, you know, each church is different. Some of these letters are going to apply more to a church than others. And some of them are going to apply more to our lives than other letters. And so it's important that as we study these, we ask God to search our hearts and our thoughts and to quote the psalmist, to see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So just to hear from him what he's saying um, with each of these letters. Now, the letters have a, a structure to them that's pretty consistent. They start with an introduction where Jesus tells the church something about himself that they're in danger of forgetting or that they need to be reminded of. And then they move on to a, um, like a, uh, an encouragement or a commendation, things that the church is doing well. After that, the next section of the letter is typically a rebuke or a correction, things that need to change within the church. And it's worth noting that uh, five of the seven letters have a correction. And so most churches need a bit of correction. If you, you assume that there's an average somewhere in there, most churches need some correction. And um, after the correction, there's a, a call to repentance, a call to change. Following that is an encouragement to hear. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Same thing in all seven. Uh, so we're all encouraged to hear what's in these letters. And then finally, uh, there is a promise to the one that conquers, to the one that overcomes. And those promises are pretty consistently about what we will be with God or with Jesus in eternity or in his kingdom. And um, so that's the structure of the letter. Let's, let's read the letter together and then go through it. Um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, So, verse 12, we'll just start going through the letter. But I think just before I do that, I have to say one other thing. I really thoroughly enjoyed... Did Robin leave? Well, I really thoroughly enjoyed her worship anyways. Yes, well, hi. Uh, I just thought that was wonderful. And as she was singing, I was like, oh, man, I have to follow that. And that's, that's hard, not that we should be comparing servants, but um, I still think it sometimes. Now, uh, so, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Uh, this is not super relevant, but Pergamum is one name for this city. Pergamos is another name. Pergamon is another name. And they're all valid, and I will probably mess them up because I grew up with a translation that had it different. But uh, this one is Pergamum. Uh, and that city was in modern-day Turkey, so on the east side of the Mediterranean there. And it was, if you were here when we studied Smyrna, Smyrna was kind of in the middle on the on the coast of the Mediterranean. If you go about 60 miles north and then 20 miles inland, you'll end up at Pergamum. So it's not a coastal city. It's not as wealthy as uh, Ephesus or Smyrna or some of the other cities in the area. But uh, what it was, what, what made Pergamum sort of stand out is that it had been a capital city for roughly over 300 years. And there's something about capital cities, right? You think Paris, you think Berlin, you think London. And a capital city has a um, almost aristocratic feel to it. There's, there's, there's a highness to it or a high brownness to it. And uh, that, that's kind of what Pergamum had. And Pergamum had that going on, and they had a lot of temples. They started uncovering what was in Pergamum in the late 1800s, and they started finding these massive temples. Uh, some of them have been shipped off to Berlin and just fully reconstructed. You can see them at museums there. But they're impressive enough that today we say, hey, these are impressive temples. And uh, there are a lot of them. Some of those temples were to uh, fertility gods. And you can imagine that the worship of a fertility god involved uh, fertility acts. And that appears to have been the case. Um, now, so, so that's the church that he's writing to. And that's the setting is that it was this capital city sort of pretty high up there. They had a wonderful library. It was second only to the Library of Alexandria. And actually, uh, kind of an interesting story, Pergamum is where we get the term parchment from because Pergamum really wanted to have the best library in the world. It's one of the ways cities used to compete. We're going to have the best library because we're going to have the best culture. And so they said, well, let's just steal the librarian from the Library of Alexandria. That seems like a good idea, but the king of Egypt at the time thought this was a terrible idea, took the librarian, put him in jail so he could go nowhere, and then cut off the supply of papyrus to Pergamum. You know, back then, the reeds growing on the Nile were the you know, large supply of papyrus in the day, and so Pergamum had to use another less popular technology, parchment, uh, wasn't called that at the time, to ride on, it's sort of these animal skins, and they... Uh, they made that more popular, and it actually ended up replacing, not replacing, but becoming the dominant thing you'd write on, papyrus was, and I'm sorry, parchment was, and the name comes from Pergamum. So that's, that's the kind of city we're talking about. Now, he addresses this to the angel of the church, and angel, the word there means messenger, and so this is uh, 
likely the person that would be carrying the letter to the church or the person that would be presenting it to the church, the person that would be reading it to them. Now, the letter itself starts with Jesus' introduction. It's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this, this uh, image that he uses here is also a description that John gives. It says that he had a, out of his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword back in Revelation chapter 1. And another place in the Bible when, when God is describing, when Paul's describing the armor of God, he talks about having a sword, the sword of the Spirit, and he says, which is the Word of God. So when we see this image here, or Jesus uses this image, having a sharp two-edged sword, and we know it's coming out of his mouth, and we have these other references to a sword being the Word of God, then uh, we really know that what Jesus is reminding them of and what they need to remember is, one, that, that he said things, like he has words that he's spoken, and they should hear it. But two, he gives two descriptions of it. One is that it's sharp. And if you've ever tried a dull knife to cut something, and then a sharp knife, or maybe a dull saw. Oh man, you ever tried to saw through wood with a dull saw? It's terrible, especially before that batteries. It just takes forever. But a sharp saw, go through it a lot easier. So if you've got a sharp sword, it's effective. It's effective at doing its job. And then you have that it's two-edged. And in those days, if a sword had one edge, what it was really bad at was going through armor. You try to pierce, and only one edge could cut. It kind of get blocked by armor pretty easily. But if you had two edges, as, as you try to go through armor, the two edges could cut each direction and go in pretty easily. It made it much more effective as a weapon. So the imagery of it being this sharp two-edged sword is that it's effective. It's good for piercing. It's good for getting down deep into us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, and he's going to make the same comparison. It says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Now, I don't know how deep you can get into the inner being of a person. I think only God knows that. But soul and spirit sounds like it is right down there in the depths. You know, as deep as you can get into a person, soul and spirit, um, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and he says, of joints and of marrow, those are, you know, way inside of you. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As much as I, I wish I could discern my own thoughts and intentions, the scripture says that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And who can know it? And really our only hope or recourse against that is to have something that can discern our thoughts and intentions. And God says that his word, what he said, is good at that. It's effective at that. So that is his reminder to them. And it's a good reminder to us that, that God has said a lot of things that they're of vital importance for us to pay attention to. And they're effective at accomplishing things in our life that nothing else can. And so when you're watching television or you're watching Netflix or you're... you're listening to NPR, and you're hearing all these voices, the thing is those can never accomplish what God's Word can accomplish in your life. And we should never take like just learning and understanding, sort of knowing what's going on in the world, as a replacement for God's assessment of what we're like and His description of the human condition and His description of how we work and how life works. 
So that's his, his reminder to them. It's what Pergamum needed to hear. It's, it's what many people need to hear about God's word. Now he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. And the word dwell there, it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense that most of the time when you talk about where a Christian is in the New Testament, we talk about them being a sojourner or an exile or a pilgrim or an alien. Something that's very temporary, right? Something like living in tents um, is, a, is a popular analogy. And this word, though, is katoikeo, and the idea is that you've settled permanently. So he's saying, I know you guys are, are permanently in this place, and then he describes that place and says where Satan's throne is. Now, a throne represents power, right? And, and you might ask yourself, why does Satan have a throne? Why does he have power on earth? Uh, Jesus did describe him in John 14. He describes him as the ruler of this world. He said, the ruler of this world is coming. But Jesus also described, didn't describe, he stated that uh, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You say, wait a minute. He was ruler. And then Jesus said he's going to be cast out. And then Jesus writes a letter later and says Satan's throne is there. You know, how does that all go together? And what's happening is, is while Jesus is the rightful ruler, he has every right to claim the throne of earth. Um, Satan is acting, being allowed to act as an usurper. He is holding on to power while he can. And it's not, it's really like Saul and David. Remember, Saul was king of Israel, and then David is anointed king. And God tells Saul, I've, I'm disposing you as king. You're no longer to be king. But Saul held on to power as long as he could. And in fact, he used the resources of the kingdom to try to hunt down and kill David. Um, and it was some time before God brought the transition of David sitting on the throne, even though he was recognized as king. And where Pergamon lived and where we live today is that Satan still has not been forced out of kingship. Um, Jesus is the rightful heir. There's a description of him in Revelation where you start with uh, John weeping because nobody can open this scroll. And then he sees that the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks, and it's this lamb as though slain, is worthy to open this scroll. And then the opening of that scroll leads to events which lead to events which lead to Jesus coming and speaking and taking over power from Satan. Satan no longer having a place here no longer having authority here. But for now, and for the church at Pergamum, Satan did have power. And, you know, I'm not a, a, I don't talk a lot about Satan or the devil, but in this passage he's here, so we're talking about him. Um, and so that's where they're dwelling. Uh, in Hebrews, just to, to bring a close to that thought, it says, speaking of the Son and of his kingship, this is now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That is, everything is rightfully subject to Jesus. Everything is rightfully in his control. But the verse continues and says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so that's where we are right now. Now, Jesus' commendation is one of contrast. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. So even though they're in the midst of that kind of environment, they're holding fast to Jesus' name. 
And then he continues to commend them and says, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Excuse me. Now, Antipas, we only know of Antipas what is written here. Um, that he was a faithful witness. So he was faithful in describing to others who Jesus was and talking about him, um, living for him. And then we know that he died a martyr's death. He was killed among them. And, uh, and that's all we know. What is likely is that he would have suffered persecution under Roman law the way the majority of churches at the time were suffering persecution. See, Rome had passed a law, and they said, once a year, you have to worship the emperor. So you have to burn some incense to him. You have to declare Caesar is Lord. And that's a problem for a Christian. You can't say Caesar is Lord. You can only say Jesus is Lord. But once you've done your duty as a Roman citizen by worshiping the emperor, we give you a certificate, and then you can go worship anybody you want. Now, what likely happened to Antipas is he refused. Um, he would have been thrown into jail, given the ability to recant, that is to declare his political allegiance to Rome by saying Caesar is Lord, and then having not done that, been killed. Um, that is how a number of other peoples were martyred, people were martyred around then. And so Antipas probably went that way. Now, the... Commendation, again, is one of contrast. It's that even though you just watched somebody be killed for faith, you are not denying the faith. You're still holding on to it. It didn't move you. So uh, one of the things I think is important to look at is the pressure that was on a Christian life in the per- church of Pergamos. Now, uh, they're under persecution because of the Roman law, but that wasn't the only thing pushing on them. Right? You also have that this city is dominated by temples that have uh, not real gods, but in a sense old gods. Right? Gods that have been around a long time. Temples that are impressive and large. And you are part of a church that may have a small building or may meet in homes and is generally misspoken of because they believed a lot of false things about Christian back then. Christians back then. There's a lot of slander related to them. Um, and, you know, these t- pagan temples, though, the masses are going to them. So kind of everybody around you is, is into that. And um, there's this threat of imprisonment and death. And so the commendation is really pretty great in that under all of this external pressure, the church held. The church was holding. Now, for us, we, we don't have those temples. But we still have a lot of pressures. We have... Uh, We have the public voices against God that tend to be very loud. You know, they tend to be heard above, above anything else, and you look at media, and then they tend to get those that assent to what they're saying to be also very loud. So you have these really loud voices saying, Christianity is this, God is this, Jesus is this, unjust, unfair. Uh, uh, oh, there's a popular word right now that's escaping me. Well, but they have a lot of negative things to say about God and, and who he is and what he's done. And um, I think that puts a lot of pressure on a life and it keeps us from being the kind of witness that God would have us be among family 
or in our workplace or among friends and peers. And um, I think sometimes it's an important question to ask ourselves. Now, Pergamum is, is successful in this, but it's important for us to assess, you know, are we paying attention to this external pressure, this sort of world pressure, um, the voices of the successful, the voices of the celebrities, and letting that shape our belief or our witness for Christ. And, um, and if we are, then to just stop it, just to stop it. I, I think I've quoted this verse before, but I'll, I'll do it again. It's a great verse. It's from Isaiah, and it says, um, Do not regard man. Yeah, do not regard man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You know, it's a, a great verse, and, and I find that that's one of the things that gets to us, is that we regard man instead of what God has said. And, you know, truth is, man, not that important. What God said is very important. So if, if, if you find yourself there, consider the reminder that Jesus gave. God's word, what he said, is effective, it's powerful, it's important to us. And start to give that more of a voice in your life than these external pressures. Now God, Jesus, moves from that commendation, they've done well to stand up to these pressures, into correction. Now verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. Now, both of the things that he has against them are what they have allowed to be in the church. So the first one here says, you have some there, it's not all of you, but you have some people there, who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam's name means uh, destroyer of the people. So you know there's going to be a fun story around that one. Uh, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, uh, so this church in Pergamum, they're in the middle of worldly pressure and worldly influence, and the pressure isn't going to get them, but what God recognizes as a problem is the influence that is beginning to creep in to the church, and that that is going to cause people to stumble in the church. And so he, so what he's saying is that some people in the church are stumbling others with idol worship and sexual immorality, and what Jesus' complaint is, or it's not a complaint, it's the wrong word, what Jesus' correction to them, what they need to address, is that they're allowing it. That they're allowing it. So Balaam, mentioned his name as destroyer of the people. I don't know who names their kid that, but um, it's, that's his name. And his story goes kind of like this. If, if you went to Sunday school growing up, the story that you probably heard, because this is all I knew about Balaam from Sunday school, is that he started riding his donkey somewhere. There was an angel. The donkey stopped. Balaam was angry. The donkey talked to him. And that was the end of the story. Okay? Um, and it's a nice story when you're in like third grade or something. But that was the story. Now, Balaam actually, the reason Balaam was going somewhere was this King Balak. He was the king of Moab. He had seen that the Israelites had defeated Midian. He'd seen that the Israelites were freed from Egypt by these great wonders, that their God was for them. And he looks at his kingdom, he says, they're going to wipe us out. We are, we're going to be wiped out by this. I'm not going to be able to beat them in a frontal assault. I can't put just direct force on them. So I'm going to hire this guy Balaam because everything he says comes true. So Balaam appeared to be a prophet 
but he was a Gentile. I, I don't know how it works, but that's what it looks like he was. And so Balak sends money and guys to go get Balaam. And Balaam says, I'll inquire of the Lord. The Lord says, don't go. He doesn't go. And then Balak says, no, I really need that guy. So he sends more money, more guys. And Balaam ends up on a horse somehow, or not a horse, on a donkey going. And then there's the Sunday school part. And, you know, the donkey talks. And then Balaam still goes. Uh, and he's just been warned to only say whatever God tells him. So he gets to where Balak is and, uh, and goes. And Balak says, go stand up here and curse these people for me. And Balaam blesses them. And Balak does not like this, right? But Balaam blesses them, and uh, Balaam says, I told you, I can only say what God told me to tell you. And then uh, Balak says, well, okay, I'll just take you somewhere else. Maybe you can curse them from there. So he does, takes them to another place, gets them to talk, and he blesses them. And then again, a third time, he blesses them instead of curses them. Uh, I can only say what the Lord told me to tell, uh, told me to say. And then I think four times total, he blesses the people of Israel. But after doing that, after not cursing them, Balaam still wants money. He's still greedy. And so Balaam gives Balak advice. He says, look, you can't beat these people in an assault, and I can't even curse them for you, but they have a jealous God. And if you were to entice their people to worship another God, or if you were to entice their people to go against his word, commit sexual immorality, then he'll fight against them. He'll fight against them. And so you find the next chapter after Balaam goes home, what happens in, in uh, Numbers 25 is, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, that is those daughters, invited the people, that's the Israelites, to the sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the angel of the Lord was, I'm sorry, Anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so Balaam's advice was not sound advice, but we'll say effective. It worked. And uh, God was now angry with them. The, the end result of that was that the Lord says to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun. So, so they did. And then God also sent a plague among the people and 24,000 people died. So when Well, that's what happened. So let's, let's talk about the, what it is to put a stumbling block before people. Because that's, that's what happens here, right? It's, it's, you have people who hold the teaching of Balaam, and he taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So how does that happen in a church? What does that look like today? We don't have a lot of temples um, to false gods where we live. We have a lot of sexual immorality, classic sin of the Gentiles, right? But um, So one of the ways that we put a stumbling block before God's people is when somebody in the church is bringing the world's ideals or their morals or their principles into God's people. You know, we were called to be holy and different and unspotted from the world. And if you bring this stuff into God's people, you're going to stumble them. You're bringing a stumbling block. Now, often this is in the form of either ignoring what God said or corrupting what God said. The uh, classic example of this is Eve. You have God said one thing. He said, 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then you have Eve recounting what God said to Satan. She says it a little different. She says, uh, the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. I'm sorry, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's a little different. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it. And then you have Satan's version, which is, you shall not surely die. You have this complete corruption of what God said. And that stumbled Eve and Adam and actually all of mankind, right? It brought spiritual death to all of us until Jesus redeemed us at the cross. So, so not holding fast to what God said is one way that we can stumble people in the church. Not paying attention to what he said is a way that we can end up stumbling people in the church. Um, God had said, as far as the example of Balaam with uh, things sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, God had said in the Ten Commandments, both of these things, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? So they're violating that one. And you shall not commit adultery. They're violating that one. Uh, he laid out other immoral sexual relations. So I didn't mean to get here, but I'm here, so I'll just finish the thought. Uh, adultery was, if you were married, and then uh, fornication, which is really the one that, that is described here, is if you're not married. It's sexual activity outside of marriage. And, um, you know, God forbid that. I want to say it's Leviticus 19. And, um, and yet they were doing it. Now, so that's one way. Uh, another way we put stumbling blocks before people is simply by practicing the thing, right? If I, one example is if there's somebody in the room that has a problem with drinking, hard for them not to drink, and I'm drinking, I'm telling them that it's okay. Now, um, that is um, not okay for me to do, even if it's okay for me to drink. It's not okay for me to drink and to cause that person to stumble. And then it's certainly never okay to do things that go against God's word. They're wrong for me, but they also can stumble other people. Now, these, these two particular things, uh, the sacrifices and the temple sacrifice there and the sexual immorality, they kind of went together in that culture. It's one of the ways you would worship at temples. And, um, you know, one, one thing of note is that sexual immorality is a corruption of what God intended. You know, just like uh, we stumble people by corrupting what his word says, you often have to corrupt something that he created. He created sex. It's good in a marriage. It's meant for a marriage. But outside of there, it can cause a lot of pain, a lot of damage, a lot of, a lot of hurt lives. Um, and that's why he tells his people not to do it. And that's why we shouldn't stumble people toward that you know, in any way. So that's that's one, of the, one of his corrections. Don't let that be in your church, people that are stumbling others. The other was, Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitans, uh, they have an interesting name as well. What it looks like that means is victory over the people from Nike and laity. Victory over laity. And the idea is that they're establishing a hierarchy where one person's over another. And we know that Jesus is the head of the church and everybody else is the body which means all of us are actually serving the head. Thus, 
if we set ourselves up as master over some other part of the body, we're not the head, and that's, that's a wrong hierarchy. It's not correct. Now, Jesus says that he hates their deeds, and uh, the church in Ephesus had hated their deeds, and Jesus commends them for it, but this church is letting their influence creep in. Pergamum's letting the influence creep in, and, and um, Jesus wants to let them know, please don't do that. That's not, that's not acceptable. So after his, after his correction, he has how they should actually correct it. And he only gives them two words. It's a little difficult for me to work with. That's uh, <laughs> therefore repent. So he, he doesn't expand on that much. He, ex, he, he has in other churches, but that's what I have. Therefore repent. Now, repent means to change your mind. Uh, it means whatever you were thinking, think, think the other way. Whatever direction you were going, Turn it 180. Go the other way. And so in this context, what you're allowing to exist in the church that ought not to be there, that's really not acceptable in the church, how you're merging the church and the world, the church and the world's ideals, stop that. Don't, don't accept that. And that's the change he's, he's calling them to. Now, I think one of the ways this happens um, is that there's this logical breakdown between uh, sort of the idea of knowing what God has said and then the idea of doing what God has said. And it's easy to do. It's easy to live sort of inconsistent with what you think you believe and with what you know. But, but it was never intended by God. When you look in Psalm 1 and you read these, this Hebrew poetry that has these couplets. So uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, a lot of them are Hebrew poetry. I, I'm not much of a poet or a linguist, so I'll just give you the simple understanding that I have. And it's that they'll give two lines, two, two lines, but they'll be either parallel ideas or contrasting ideas. They don't rhyme. It's not like there's strange things done under the midnight sun. You know, we would rhyme our poetry, but they are more rhyming their ideas or contrasting their ideas. And so in Psalm 1, this, this chapter that is by and large, about what God has said, what his precepts are, what God's word is. It says, blessed are those whose way is blameless. That's one idea. It's about how you're walking. And then the parallel idea is who walk in the way of the Lord. So it's, uh, I'm sorry, and walk in the law of the Lord. So you've got the way, how you walk, and you've got the law, what God said. And these go hand in hand. They're together. They're these parallel ideas. Second verse, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, so you're following what he said, and who seek him with their whole heart. So you knowing what he said, following what he said, and being close to him with your heart, parallel ideas. Who also do no wrong, again, how you're acting, but walk in his ways. You know, who have commanded your precepts, again, what he said, to be kept diligently, how you act. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, how I act, in keeping your statutes, what you said. And so there is this tremendous coupling that God intends between what he said and what we do. And when that breaks down, we ought to repent. We ought to change our mind, change where we're going in life.
That's not necessarily easy. Um, but it is simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. I have uh, a friend who, he was, he was losing a lot of weight. And I said, what do you do? What are you doing? We'd been friends for 20-something years. He'd, never, he'd always been, um, his mom was a very good cook. And um, he said, you know, I'm just exercising more and eating less. It's hard. It's a very hard thing to do. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's also a simple thing. And repenting is like that. It's not an, it's not an easy thing to do, but it is a simple thing to do, to decide to follow what God said. And, of course, he will give you the resources to do it if you decide to do it. You might think, I can't do that. But when God asks you to do something, he will help you do it. He says, if not, moving on in verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against you, or against them. So it's not the whole church, it's just these people. Against them with the sword of my mouth. Um, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, it says in Revelation 19. Excuse me. God's word is effective for good things. It's also effective as as a judge, and that's what he's telling them. If you guys don't repent, you don't take care of this, I'm going to have to. When you think of the aftermath of the the Balaam incident, where there's this plague and 24,000 people die, you just think, let's correct this as soon as possible. You know, don't let it be there because it does damage. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, uh, again, this is a hard one to know what it is. Um, what I say is certainly not. I'm not claiming to know more than any of the other commentators. They have a lot of opinions on it. I'm going to put, put mine out there, what I, what I think he's referring to. What I think he's referring to is, is where Aaron took some of the manna that had fallen. He put it in a jar and he put it in the ark. And that ark went on to be in Solomon's temple and God's glory came and ascended there. And nobody was allowed to look into that ark. God actually killed some people for looking in there. And, and I think what he's saying here is, is some of that manna that's right there in the midst of the presence of God, uh, that's some of that nourishment. I'm going to give that to you. Um, you know, you're going to eat or be sustained in the presence of God. Um, and then it says, I will give him a white stone. My uncle apparently went to a church where their band was named White Stone from this verse. <laughs> Useless, but interesting. Uh, and, and so we don't know what the white stone is, but he says more about it. He says, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, God, God likes names, right? God gave himself some names to help us know him and understand him. God gave some people names. There's Abram, which meant exalted father, and uh, God renamed him to Abraham because it's father of many nations. And he knew that that would be the true status of Abraham, that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. And so his renaming there was according to what he knew to be true about him. Jacob, uh, not the best name to be born with, maybe. It's a planter or heel catcher. And if there's a Jacob here, I'm not trying to offend you. It's, it's a fine name today. because, But, but for Jacob then, uh, it's a planter or heel catcher. God renames to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And talk about something that described Israel pretty well for a long time. Uh, God knew that that would be their status. Not only did Jacob wrestle with God and get renamed to Israel for it, but Israel would wrestle with God for 
centuries and centuries. Um, you have other names in the Bible, like Balaam, destroyer of the people, and Nicolaitans, victory over the people. But God is going to give us a name, not one of those negative ones. But uh, you know, we don't know what the new name will be. Maybe something like walks with God. Maybe something like righteous. But I look forward to it because of the way God has loved us. I expect him to give us a loving name that represents our status with him in eternity. Um, in Peter, it says that Christ loved the church. That includes you here. And gave himself up for her. That's his sacrifice. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And if somebody was going to give me a name, I would want it to be the person that had done that for me. And that's the kind of name we're going to get. It's a name from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the church at Pergamum and the example they were and the example that you've given us of how to stay close to you and how we should avoid letting things into our church. Um, just ask for you to work in our hearts and to um, be revealing to us any way that uh, is wicked or any way that needs to change. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.